on a serious note, um, thank you very much for having me. And um, thank you for the years the Vineyard has supported STEP. Uh, you have been faithfully giving um, time, money, prayer, and team STEP ever since we first started. So for over 20 years, Vineyard has been intrinsically involved in what STEP has done in local secondary schools. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I want to start with a question. Um, my question is this. Um, how did you get to be in this place? How did you get to be a believer? How, how, who was instrumental in that? Who, who shaped that? Who, who spoke into your life and made it happen? I wonder who it was. Was it more than one person? Was it a couple? Do they know that they were instrumental? That they were pivotal in your life? I wonder if you've ever told them. I was, I was sitting with um, 12 17-year-old boys that we were training in leadership. So they're not Christians, they don't go to church, and um, we were teaching them six things about leadership. They're on a course with us. And um, we looked at the place of being pivotal, of being influencers with them. And um, they sat down and wrote on postcards letters to people at the age of 17 of, of people that have influenced them, have, have shaped them. And um, it was extraordinary to hear what these people did in their lives. Amazing. Do I need to move this at all? Um, it was extraordinary. And um, it's life-changing when you realize what people have done for you, and even just the little things they've done. So I wonder for you, who has been pivotal? I know for me, there's three people that got my Christian journey started. The, the first uh, was a mum. She had, um, uh, I'd gone and stayed at her house. I was probably about eight or nine. My, probably my first ever sleepover. And um, uh, we're all heading off to bed. And she had three children. And she went to each child and she said, God bless them. God bless them. God bless them. And she prayed very particular prayers into their lives. Now, my family aren't Christians. So the idea of being prayed for before you go to bed was just very odd. So I was like, oh. And then she walked up to me. And um, she looked at me, and she had this kind of frown on her face. And, and then it, she, she shook her head, and she put her hand on my forehead and said, may you grow to know Christ. And she went off. And I still can see her face. I can't remember her name. She was Sean's mum. Amazing, pivotal little moment in my life. The second one was the 11-year-old that brought me to Christ. We, he had spent um, a while telling me some of the things I do, was doing in life were, wasn't good. It was offending God. And we'd had, a, I won't tell you the whole story, but we'd had quite a lot of ruckus about it. But he was very faithful. And um, uh, on an assault course, I was running around this assault course. And as on this assault course, the, um, I got to a wall I was going to climb up or throw myself over. But I was feeling quite wretched. Um, awful, and I was thinking about all the terrible things I'd done to my sister. And um, it was so bad that I didn't throw myself at the wall. I sat down and just felt awful. And as he ran by, he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, are you all right? Can't you go over the wall? I'll give you a hand. And I said, no, no, um, I'm fine. I just feel awful. And he looked at me, and he went, I think it's Jesus. 
And I said, if it's Jesus, I want it to go away. And, um, uh, and this lad, Andrew, he's on my f Facebook friends, if you want to find him. Um, uh, Andrew uh, said, um, okay, and he put his hand on my shoulder and he prayed, come, Holy Spirit. And the presence of God fell on me. The only way I can explain it, and maybe some of you know what this feels like, like sort of ambrosia custard just on my head, just sort of. And I sat there at the age of 11 in an all-boys school next to a wall with a rugby team running by, throwing themselves over, having my first experience with the Holy Spirit with Andrew's hand on my shoulder. And I, I sort of opened my eyes and looked at him, and he went, now that you're a Christian, <laughs> and we had a big theological debate, no, I'm not, yes, you are, no, I'm not, yes, you are. Um, but Andrew is my second pivotal person. Now, my mum and dad um, didn't don't have faith and um, they were quite shocked at the radical transformation that happened from that moment onwards um, I loaded the dishwasher I didn't grunt at them there was some change and, um, uh, and um, uh, they, um, uh, they wanted to know what was going on so my dad I went to Andrew's church which was an amazing Pentecostal church and, um, uh, and um, my dad sat, came to the back of the church and sat down and was quite shocked by the cultural differences between his white middle-class world and this very working-class Pentecostal church and jumped to the conclusion that I was being brainwashed. So they banned me from church. So the first year of my Christian life, I didn't go to church. Um, I slammed my bedroom door and sat in my bedroom and read my little... Gideon's Bible work. And my, um, Gid, talking of Gideons, um, Step works with the Gideons and we get them into nearly every secondary school in St. Albans to give out those little red Bible books. <laughs> They're amazing. Thank you, any Gideons in the room. Um, so anyway, so I sat there and one day me and my mum had had this significantly bad row about me wanting to go to church and her saying no. And I'm um, Sadly, I'd made her cry, and she was crying in, in work in school. Um, she was a teacher. And her lab technician said, why are you crying? And she said, well, me and my son, we have one thing we argue about, and that's because he wants to go to church, and I won't let him. And the lab technician was like, why? And so she explained. And um, this lab technician, coincidentally, <laughs> was a pastor's wife. And um, she went, do you trust me? And my mum said, yeah, I do. Thinking, I trust you to put the right chemicals in the right pots and things. <laughs> and um, and she, she said, I'm a pastor's wife. Can you come to my church? And my mum thought for a while and said, yes. So she's my third pivotal person I wanted to share. I could tell you loads more, but on how did I get to be here was three people, two of them probably didn't cost them very much at all. They just decided to say something, to do something, to do what they normally do, but do a bit more. And Andrew, as all young people are, was just extraordinary. Just an incredible young man. Just like our incredible young people up in the rooms up there. Just waiting for their chance. So... 
I want to talk a little bit about being pivotal, really. That's where I want to challenge us on. And um, if someone said to me, Chris, what, what, what is step? What does step do? I think I would simply say step is about putting pivotal people into secondary schools to see young lives change for the better, ideally through meeting Jesus. That's, that's what we do. That's what we want to do. That's what we're going to keep on doing. At the moment, every week, we work with a 1,000 students. Every week, we do that. So if I said to Mark, Mark, I'm going to do a mission event, I can guarantee you a 1,000 young people come and hear you for an hour. It's quite a good sales pitch, isn't it? But we do that every week, not just one week, not just two weeks, 2,000, not just three weeks, 3,000. We do it week in, week out, 39 weeks a year. It's consistent witness. So it's quite fun. And all we're trying to do is put pivotal people, those people that changed you, the three that changed me, into the lives of people who haven't experienced it. That's really my elevator pitch on step. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about how you can be pivotal in your context, but also how we're being pivotal. I'm going to try and do two things at the same time. And um, I thought I'd start with um, why, why did step exist? And I think Mark teed us up for that quite well last week. If you were here last week, Mark talked um, about the, the state that our country's got into. We're, we're in this place where we were on this journey, Mark said, heading towards sort of utopia, where all our freedoms um, and all our hopes are going to sort of crescendo in this, this place. And actually, people are beginning to find that that was a lie. That actually, rather than having this uh, absolute freedom and better relax on desert islands with whoever, whenever we wanted, actually, we are suffering from anxiety. Our relationships are breaking down. We walk around with these sense of shame and don't want anyone to see under our masks of an ears. We're, we're hitting burnout. And the suicide rate is extraordinary among adults and young people. Step spends a lot of time working with children that are pondering these things or with um, kids that their friends have taken their lives. We run courses around it. So we're, we, we're, we're, we've been in this place where we thought we'd get something and it was a lie and we're bearing that pain in our body. So, so why step is actually to try and do something about it. Why are we in this place? I want to be a little bit provocative, and I might be wrong, but I'll say it. Um, I wonder if in this place is because someone didn't do their job. Someone didn't do something they were meant to do. And it wasn't God, which leaves another group of people to ponder. What if we were meant to do something and we didn't do it? And sadly, we're not the only people that didn't do the things we were meant to do. In fact, the Bible is littered, particularly the Psalms, of, of things we should do that we didn't do. We were meant to do, but we didn't. In fact, if you turn to the last passage in the Old Testament, it talks about something that should have happened that didn't, and, and God so desperately wanting to see that happen. And so what is it that should have happened that didn't, that maybe we have a chance to change even now? 
So if we could um, turn to Psalm 78, I'll talk you through it. Psalm 78, 1 to 8. will be on screen and in your Bibles. So, this word says, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and what we know, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, of his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes to Jacob and he established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to tell their children. Then they will put their trust in God. They will not forget his deeds, but will keep his commandments. They will not be like their forefathers who were a stubborn and rebellious generation, whose hearts were not loyal to God and whose spirits were not faithful to him. Whenever, whenever you hear the Bible use the word generation, you need to realise something. It's not just talking about church. What were you meant to do but didn't do? Tell the next generation. And it's not just talking about church. It's not just our children within these walls. When the Bible uses the word generation, it is the Israelites talking to all the other Israelites, the younger ones, but also all around them. So we're meant to tell the next generation, not just the ones in here, but the ones out there, the people we're in offices with, the people that we meet at school gates, the people that we pass, the people we contact on social media, we're meant to tell the next generation. You see, back in the day uh, of the Hebrews, they didn't just have everyone was a believer. They had agnostics and atheists. They had people that were, were taking some time out of faith. They had people that were rebelling, just like now. And so we need to include everyone and not just think our job is to look after our own. In fact, it's a mandate for discipleship. Now, I don't know what you think discipleship means, but most people think discipleship means making them like us. Isn't that discipleship? They need to be like us. Do life our way. Be little mini-me's. Well, what if discipleship isn't that? What if discipleship is about helping people become responsible for their own spiritual growth? It looks different. And what if we haven't passed on well to the next generation? Is we try to make them like us, and it didn't work, so we went, oh, I'm not going to do that. What if it was, discipleship is about actually giving them enough sense of responsibility and ownership of their faith that they can do it themselves, even if it looks a little bit different? Think about Saul. And Goliath. Saul is there, he's got his armies lined up, Goliath's got his armies lined up, and there's meant to be this great face-off, but Saul won't go out there, as he's going to lose. In fact, anyone who goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath is going to lose. And Goliath is holding off this battle. He's a bit of a hero, really, isn't he? He's stopping slaughter. 
sorry to give you a different perspective. <laughs> He's stopping slaughter and no one's stepping up. And David, who has been discipled, you know, probably by, by Samuel or someone, who understands that God is incredible and God will not tolerate this. God will give the victory. David ends up going, why, why aren't we not fighting? Why are you not out there, Saul? And, and, and Saul says, have you seen him? I'm old. And David's like, I'm young. And um, they end up having this kind of conversation, which is quite interesting, where Saul tries to disciple David. And he goes, all right, you go out there. You go out and win in the name of God. And here's my armor. And he tries to make David like him. He disciples him. He puts his armor on him and says, you, you know, you go out there and fight like this. And David can barely stand in this thing. And Saul thought he was training him, protecting him, looking after him, making him ready. He was doing the best he could. And, and David could never have won that battle. If Saul had succeeded in discipling him in that moment and making him a little him, making him like him, David would have been cut down. So David throws it off because he knows his God will win the victory. He isn't quite sure how yet, but he's got a bit of an inkling. He's going to do a bit different. He's going to do this duel differently. And as he goes out there, he goes and does what he's good at. It's like he takes a gun to a sword fight. Doesn't he? He walks out there. Saul looks at him. He's very rude. David even tells him what he's going to do. Let me read you David's speech. You know, he gives Saul a bit of a heads up. Uh, no, uh, Goliath a bit of a heads up. Uh, let me find it. Uh, da, 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 da. I might tell you it. Right. You come against me with your sword. Oh, I've got to give you a little bit of a visual understanding of this as well. So David, Goliath's belly, okay? You come against me with your sword, okay? So just get the visuals. Oh, I've lost my bit now. <laughs> took ages to find that. Okay, with your sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the God Almighty. David's got a discipleship perspective that was a bit different to Goliath's and definitely Saul's. Saul thought you can only win with a shield and with armour. And this young person has a totally different perspective. It's not about me and him. It's about him and him. He has a totally new perspective. So he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty and the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Let's read on a little bit. I skipped a bit as it's quite long. It's a long speech. Long speeches are good. He turns around to the crowd of Philistines gathered here and he goes, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into our hands. Gun. And he shoots him with a slingshot. He doesn't go near the beast. 
And everyone stood by and went, that's not cricket. <laughs> well, well that, you, you can't. And Goliath falls to the ground and we know the victory is won. And often we try and disciple people and they do things a little bit differently. And we're like, ooh. And we back off. Actually, we need to dig in more and stop trying to make people like us. We need to teach them Jesus and all that he wanted. If you, if you read the Great Commission in the message, where it says, go and make disciples, in the message it goes, go and teach people this way of life. Disciples is make them like us. But what it really means is teach them how to do life well. How did Jesus show us how to do life? That's what the call on us is. And that's what David got. He knew how to do it. And he did it differently, and it was awkward, and everyone went, ooh. But they won. And no one was complaining, except for Goliath. So, anyway, that was a bit of a distraction, sorry. Um, so, Psalm 78. Um, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you pass on to the next generation? I want to give you a couple of ideas. Uh, it says we will not hide our truths from the next generation. Really what it's saying is don't ignore the situation. Don't hide. Don't, don't bury it. And often I think we've buried things. Don't hide it. I'll explain more in a minute. The next bit it says is um, w um, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds. Another phrase that I'm going to talk about instead is talk about what God did in the Bible, his praiseworthy deeds. It then says talk about his power, talk about what God can do, his power, and then talk about his wonders. What has he done recently? That's what discipleship is especially if you're discipling a generation, not just your own in here, but everyone that God has given us. That's what we're meant to be doing, I think. And the problem is, um, it's like an intervention, if you think about it. This is, this is like an intervention. Things are going wrong, and some of the elders in the, the Hebrew community have said, right, this is what we've got to do. We've got to tell the next generation. This is how we're going to engage. And so that's what's going on, an intervention. And these are the things you're going to do. So the first one is, don't ignore the situation. Too often, we are not first to the party. And because we're not first to the party, we only get in the news for what we're against. You ever notice that? Whenever Christians are on TV, we're saying what we're against. It's because we didn't get there first. If we didn't ignore the situation, if we recognized there were elephants in the room, we could get there first. The very phrase, young person is popular rumoured to be a marketing phrase that came from the Second World War. They realised after the Second World War, there was children, youth with money. Someone we can sell things to. And it was a phrase aimed at people, another marketing place where there was, we could spend money. We didn't get there first. So don't ignore the situation. So here's the situation. Our church, not Vineyard, but the church in the UK, are hemorrhaging young people. For every one we gain, we are losing 24. For every one we gain, we're losing 24. I, could, I haven't got time to tell you why. 
But um, uh, it's really, really interesting. But in that, so you could look at statistics and be horrified, or you could look at what Step's doing and say, there are 15 of 17, there are 17 secondary schools, we're working in 15 of them. That's over 80% of kids in secondary schools have pivotal people going in, trying to shape their lives and do this. So don't ignore the situation, do something about it. But for, for work, or wherever your context is, what is going on that you don't want to be late to the party for? Don't ignore it and get there first with your values, with your faith. Teach people this way of life. Second one is talk about what God has done. Re really, really interesting that um, uh, they did some research on young people and um, uh, they discovered that young people are not asking any questions about faith at all. In fact, the research is called No Questions Asked. They realized young people just, they sat there in the interview going, hmm, yeah. And the only time they got any response from these young people was when they talked about prayer, death, and the afterlife. Whenever they got on those, they were, the passion level went and went up. So talk about what God has done. Those are the spaces where we need to engage and talk about what God is doing, but from scriptures. But it's funny when we use scriptures. I don't know if you're like me. I read in the Bible once in Ephesians, there's the, um, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So, so this book is a, is a sword. And um, I've always viewed it as a sword and not realized the context. Women are treat this book as a sword when we're fighting the devil, when he comes against us with temptation or speaking untruths about us. The rest of the time, we're not to, meant to view this as a sword. We're meant to view this as bread. That's the other language for the Bible, isn't it? And so when you are talking to people about faith, when you're sharing stories, give them bread. Give them bread. Don't give them the sword. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I was in assembly once, and um, uh, it was a bunch of sixth formers, and sixth formers are a bit antagonistic. And one kid put his hand up and said, are you trying to convert us and make us go to church? And um, the words of J. John came to mind. And um, J. John said this, which is what I said. I said, um, let's just say that I am a beggar that has found food, bread and I'd like to take some people to it. Um, that young person got saved, went to church, and I haven't really explained anything about it, but the idea that someone might offer him bread rather than a sword from religion interesting offer bread when you go home and your neighbor goes what did you do this morning and you go oh, I went to church and they go oh that's interesting don't jump over the fence with a sword and go stab 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 <laughs> not helpful <laughs> give them some bread what was said today that fed you that could feed them that may totally change their life teach people this way of life
talk about what God has done, talk about stories from his Bible. The, the next one is um, talk about his power and be ready to do something. At the end of the day, that's what we need. It shortcuts everything when you talk about God's power. As um, uh, we do, um, young people have to learn in school um, arguments for the existence of God. Every young person has to learn it, which is very interesting in a very sort of secular society. And um, uh, we went in to teach that. And one of the arguments for the existence of God is religious experiences. And so we drive in there, and I'm, I'm driving along, and I'm saying into the, uh, to God in the car, is there anything you want me to say? And, um, and God says, there's going to be someone there with a red flower in their hair. I'm like, <clears throat> okay, what do you want me to say? Tell them I'm not angry at them. It's fairly safe, really, isn't it? Everyone thinks God's angry at them. So I was like, okay. But I don't know how to say that in a classroom. So I get into the classroom, we sit down, and, um, and guess who walks in? Red. It was plastic flower. So, uh, oh, so I was a bit like, oh, maybe not. Anyway, so I, I worked up to it. It took me about 35 minutes. And I, and I talked about God speaks sometimes. And finally someone bit and said, would God say something to us? And I said, well, let's just suppose he did. He might say something like this. Deep breath. And I, I was driving here and God put in my mind, someone who had a red flower in the hair. And she looks at me. And the teacher looked at me. And um, the teacher was thinking, what are you about to do to my children? <laughs> and um, uh, I said, God's says he's not angry at you. And she started to wail. And the teacher did said, what have you done to my children? <laughs> and her friends put their arms around her. And to cut a very long story short, is um, she, uh, uh, their friend had died a few weeks before. And she and her friends had gone to a spiritualist, contacted to the dead, and tried to talk to their dead friend. And then they tried it at home on their own. And all sorts of weird things happened and she thought God that that was God and God was angry at her and so her and her friends we got to sit and talk about the nature of God we got to talk about spirituality and what is a good road and a bad and we got to call them back to a place where there is healthy spirituality so talk about what God can do it doesn't need to be weird but you do need to back it up have a go and so the last one is talk about what God done, has done recently. Because actually, people want to know. They don't want theory and ideas. Young people don't want theories and ideas. They want to know, does it work now? Is it going to work for me? Um, and talk about what they want to know. There's three objections currently to Christianity. First one is, um, I'm not good enough. They look at you and me and they think we're good because we're good with a mask. And they don't know that Christians aren't good, we're grateful. We need to be a little bit more grateful and talk about our failings just a little bit more because we've actually, in our attempt to be holy and pure, we've put people off because they think they can never be like you and me. Um, so their objections, they're not good enough. Two, suffering. Think about what they're interested in talking about, death and the afterlife. And free science. 
my friend Jeff, who's here somewhere, you, you can go and see him after. He says, we're, um, uh, we're, we've made science of God the deification of science. It is a conscious force that, you know, when you go, oh, the, the, what about God? They go, science, science made that. Really interesting. Can we put the next slide up? Don't know what you see. Say what you see. Say louder. You're saying different things. It's the same evidence. You're looking at the same thing. Why can't you agree with each other? It's plain. We're looking at exactly the same thing as everyone else. And we need to not back off and go, hold on, let's look at it. The same things that people use to argue against God are the same things that are proof that God is amazing and real and made all of this. Don't back off. You don't have to have great ideas. Do you know I spent, I need to finish soon, I spent ages um, in a governor of a school that was a science college. We went out for a drink with this governor. Uh, four hours later, we had gone toe-to-toe on this, and I'm an artist, not a scientist, um, but we just played with this idea all evening. And the end, he went, what does it take to, to, to make you not believe? And I went, oh, that's simple. And he said, what is it? And I said, find me the bones of Jesus. And he was like, what? I said, that's a science thing. You find me the bones of Jesus and I won't think he's God. And he went, oh, okay. I was like, that's the problem. He died and he rose again and he's sitting next to the Father in heaven. There are no bones. So, <laughs> that ended the conversation, really. <laughs> and on that note, we need to watch that. Um, because often when we're talking about things like that, we need to realise something, that when you talk to people of faith, they actually don't want proclamation. They want conversation. And so I want you to realise this. You can score a point and lose a conversation. You need to think about, when you chat to people about faith, that this is like tennis, but you're not scoring points. You are doing a rally over the net. (gasps) That's really interesting. Oh, it's backhand. Do you get it? We need to stop scoring points and going in there with our swords and we need to start a conversation that makes people interested. Can we go back to the other slide? I've lost my track again. Okay. So you're not trying to score points. Do you know many teenagers think Christianity is boring? Who did they learn that from? I'd say we've got a little bit to blame as well. If they think Christianity is boring, they've watched someone doing it wrong. And it's hard when you're middle-aged and you're just trying to survive and get kids to sleep and all the rest of it. But they need to watch something that has got all the life that attracted you. The thing, the pivotal people who spoke to you, spoke into your life. We need to keep it alive. We do um, 20, 20 odd retreats a year where we take sort of 60 to 150 kids on retreat for a whole day. Do you know my children try and throw sickies on those days because they don't want to miss out? <laughs> 
because it's not falling on those days. Something is going to happen. We need to do that. So my challenge for us in all of this is um, how are you going to be pivotal? How do you stop this flow of everything going towards a utopia that fails? How can you speak into people's lives? And there's a few ideas that you can do, a few things you can do. Um, but where do you start? You start in the places God's put you, but you also start with the children and the young people. And we'd love you to join us doing that as well. Join us with STEP. There's, um, we've got 40 volunteers. We, would, um, we need another 50. And, um, uh, and actually, it doesn't mean you have to be standing up and good at talking and things. Actually, there are so many skills. There are so many different people that help step in this building in so many different ways. Um, even walking in here, I just bumped into to Roger. As you head out, there's some banners and bookmarks on the left. Roger made those. So go and have a look at them. Roger was like, how can I engage? How can I do this? Well, he, he did that. So whatever you're good at, I bet we could give you an opportunity to use it in one way or another. We met another guy who, um, he goes, I want to help you, but I armor white blood cells. And I do it in the evening, so I sleep in the day. So it sounds like a vampire to me. But, um, yeah, and he came and taught GCSE science and Christianity um, before he went home to bed after work. So wherever you're good at, come and chat to us about it. So my challenge is this. Who are you going to be pivotal to? Maybe consider doing it with step to some young people. Whatever you're good at, I bet we could get you to do it. It's our watch. It is our turn to pass on to the next generation. Whether it is in our youth and church, which we need lots of volunteers for, whether it is in schools with step, or whether it is in your workplace as the generations are around you as well. There's only two schools left in St. Albans and Harpenden that STEP doesn't work in. Two left. We're going to get there. Every young person will get to hear about Jesus from the churches in St. Albans and Harpenden. I won't clap yet. Can you help? Yes. Here's a couple of ways. Um, the first one is join in. Come and help. Whatever time you've got left, come and do what you're good at. Um, secondly, can you, can you pray for us? Um, there's ways to do it. We've got a stall outside. We'll get, put you on some lists where you can find out and subscribe how to pray for us. Um, and we're also having a day of fasting on the 30th of March. Maybe consider fasting and praying for set for the day. Um, we'll tell you more about that after. Um, and then lastly, um, can you give? To get those last two schools, we need to get another worker. So can you help us in some way or that? And it may be actually you're on a board of a trust or something as well, that those kind of relationships are really helpful as well. So I don't know how you could help us, but um, would you consider being pivotal with us for what we're doing? But also, would you please take on board what I've said and be pivotal in the places God has put you? We should get the band up. I should have done that the other way around, shouldn't I? Mark kept stressing, ask the band up, ask the band up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. You didn't even wave like that. Ah! So um, we have got ourselves in this situation. Um, 
And it's always happened in the Bible. And the last pages are, we will God says, I will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the hearts of the children. Lest I come and strike the land with a curse. God's like, you've got to fix this. You've got to fix this. This is our watch. We can do it. You join in. Thank you. That's great. Why don't we all stand? Uh, I'd like us just to pray for Chris and the step team. Um, and during the worship, you'll see we've got our collection baskets at the end of the rows. Can you just pass those along? We want to just take up a collection for step for the amazing work that they are doing. Uh, if you want to give and you've maybe got plastic and you haven't got money, then the guys at the step booth uh, out in the atrium can uh, certainly take some money for you. So why don't we just extend out our right hand to Chris as we, as we pray, and then we're going to have a quick time of worship before we end the service. Lord, we want to thank you for Chris and the step team who do such an amazing job, who are pivotal people to a generation that needs to know about you and hear about your good deeds and your power. And Lord, we just pray for your favor upon them. Give them increased opportunities, increased influence in the region, Lord, mm. and unlock those two last remaining schools, we pray. Mm. And Lord, unlock your resources. Mm. And as a church, Lord, would you just stir our hearts as we think about supporting STEP and continuing to support STEP? Mm. We just want to say thank you for what you're doing and Chris and the team. Mm. And continue, Lord, we pray to pray your blessings upon them. Yeah. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let us Amen. worship. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.